Hello, I'm Ken Root. They say you can learn a lot from reviewing the past. I don't know if that's true, but looking back almost 25 years to the debate on farm legislation, you can certainly appreciate the thinking of the day and the political climate in which everyone was working. This Vintage AgriTalk program features Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh. He was the chairman of the 21st Century Commission on Agriculture and an outspoken advocate of the 1996 Farm Bill known as Freedom to Farm. Dr. Flinchbaugh, now deceased, was a giant in the era of Congressman Pat Roberts, Senator Bob Dole, and Ag Secretary Dan Glickman. They were all from Kansas, often called the Kansas Mafia. To set the stage for this archive show, the 1996 Farm Bill was designed to decouple farm payments from farm production. But counter-cyclical became the buzzword as in 1997, we saw a drop in farm prices due to an Asian recession that was still going on in late 1999 when we recorded this live show. Dr. Flinchbaugh caused students, farmers, and politicians to show their bias by his direct and sometimes incendiary comments. He was Will Rogers with a Ph.D. Be sure and listen to the status of crop insurance in this 40-minute exchange. The most relevant part of today's farmer's safety net hardly got a mention. Here's AgriTalk from 1999. This is AgriTalk. I'm Ken Root on the second day of the Missouri Governor's Conference from Tantara at Lake of the Ozarks. Who would have thought that the 1990s, the goingest decade of human history with greater adoption of technology, more rise in equity markets, communications capabilities beyond most people's capabilities to use them, would wind up for agriculture as the worst economic conditions for commodity producers of grain and livestock in recent memory. A decade that saw record high prices at midpoint for farmers, and a farm bill that clearly aimed farmers at a free market with minimal government support by 2002. Now in 1999, the reality that Freedom to Farm payments for the three years of Freedom to Farm have paid out more money than the previous bill would have paid in the same period. Pat Roberts, godfather of Freedom to Farm as House Ag Committee Chairman and now U.S. Senator, says of the 1999 payment increase, every commodity group or farm organization that wanted something simply brought their old and favorite covered dish to the emergency farm bill supper. Are the days of dreams of a world market begging for our grains over? Will the romantic nationalism of Europe overpower the market efficiencies of U.S. producers? Well, a man who has great influence on future agricultural policy is our guest this hour. He is Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh, a Kansas State ag economist and chairman of the 21st Century Commission on Production Agriculture. Although he once told me off-air during this program that he didn't think the commission would ever amount to a tinker's dam, it well has. In fact, everyone is looking at the commission as the ones to write the first draft of the next farm bill. The observations of one of agriculture's most dynamic ag economists, and you can join in at 888-247-4825 or 888-AGRITALK. Information you want and the voice you need. This 
is AgriTalk. I'm Ken Rood. Our guest today is Dr. Barry Flinchball. I would give him a bigger introduction if no one knew him, but one of the most known agricultural economists in America today. I'll just say this, that he received his B.S. in animal science and his master's in agricultural economics uh, back a number of years ago before he got a Ph.D. in ag econ from Purdue University. Some people say that anything he received with a B.S. is definitely a capital letter on both. And he served at the faculty at Kansas State since 1971. Good morning, Dr. Flinchbaugh. Boy, you're clever this morning, you know it. You didn't tell them how old I was, and then you capitalized B.S., so uh, we're ready to go. <laughs> well, you know, we've been trying to get you to the meetings we've been having here at Lake of the Ozarks uh, for various reasons. You, I understand that, but I want to say that last time when we didn't get you, last summer for a regional farm broadcaster meeting, we had to bring in two other members of the commission, Don Vilwalk and uh, Bob Stallman, you were then, better off with them than with me, so you well, won. That's the first time I've ever heard you say anything like that. I'm just not sure whether you meant it or not. <laughs> the second time is this time, and we have two other members of the commission, in fact, who just were here, are on the program right now at this meeting, and we'll tape a show with later on today, in Bill Northy and uh, Mr. Dupree, whose first name I never remember, Jim from Arkansas. Well, so I listened to them. Again. I listened to them before I talked to you, and I'm going to talk to you before I talk to them. Freedom to Farm, 1996, the farm bill we're operating under right now, has come under uh, various levels of scrutiny. Um, and it appears to me as an observation is that ag policy doesn't exist in a vacuum. And what seemed to be a good deal then is not uh, being considered the same today. Is it that simple? Well, it's pretty close. It, it, it never did exist in a, in a vacuum, but... Uh this day and age, which with a third of everything we produce going into the global economy, uh, there's no way it can be in a vacuum. So uh, it's not um, difficult to uh, understand what's going on now. Uh, as I've told Chairman Roberts, what he doesn't understand is that uh, Freedom to Farm caused the Asian crisis and the Europeans to be overly aggressive and international capital leaving Asia and uh, we might as well throw in El Nino and La Nina. That's how ridiculous some of this is getting. Um, and it's really a philosophical argument. It's not a, a farm support argument because we're paying out billions more under the current farm bill than we would have paid out under the old one. And so it, it's not a matter of dollars. Uh, it's philosophy. Well, it's how number, you do it. There's a number of people right now that uh, are feeling the bite of this economically, and it's hard for them to be very philosophical about it. They want something different now, even though they may have supported Freedom to Farm back uh, several years ago. But the interesting thing is that everybody in 96 who was opposed to Freedom to Farm said it didn't offer a safety net. But in occurrence with the amount of money it's paying out this year under a combination of double uh, AMTA payments and uh, LDP, uh, it apparently offers a safety net that seems to be working. Absolutely. What is $22.5 billion if it isn't a safety net? Uh, Freedom to Farm had a safety net in it from day one. The first year it paid out $6.3 billion when the old program wouldn't have paid out anything. If that isn't a safety net, I don't understand what the word means. Uh, what they don't like, some of them, is that it's a decoupled safety net. And, and you know, farmers have grown up thinking price, 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 price. 
everything will be fine if prices are high. Well, what about the, the other two parts of the equation, yield and cost? It's income that's important, mm -hmm. and Freedom to Farm supports farm income. Well, it makes it now to where that farmers feel they're trapped, that they have to produce a very high yield to be able to get the LDP, and the high yield makes it to where the actual price of the commodity is low. Well, I agree with them there. I don't, frankly don't think we need an LDP. Uh, what we need is, uh, in a temporary cash flow problem, is checks from the government. Uh, and, and some farmers don't like that. But we've got to compete in that global economy or shut down a third of agriculture's machine. Those are the two options. There's something further here before we get into the workings of Freedom to Farm. And if you want to call, you know how to do it. It's 888-AGRITALK. And that is that clearly during this decade we have seen a change in the, uh, in the number of people who are full-time farmers. Uh, to the point that the USDA's 1.9 million is, uh, in my estimation, totally out of line with how many people are really out there that are full-time farmers. And then past that, we've seen a change in the relationship that those farmers have with industry and the potential for industrialization within agriculture. Could you talk about that for a moment of those changes inside the system and how that those people who are now uh, reacting negatively to the farm program may or may not be addressing the real problems that they're facing? Well, I've argued for some time that where the loan rate is set or what kind of farm program we have uh, over the long haul is really not that important. The, the real important question to American agriculture in the next decade is who's going to control the gene pool. Uh, it's, a, it's a gigantic issue. Who's going to control the what? The gene pool. The gene pool. Uh, we're, we're, we're clearly moving down the route of uh, uh, genetically modified organisms. Uh, and yes, I know all the controversy, but uh, surveys for next year show that we're going to continue to move in that direction, basically. Uh, and it just gets back to the whole notion of a competitive economy, the whole concentration question, and I simply argue that that efficient farmer out there can compete around the world, but he has to have a competitive economy. He can't compete if uh, one firm controls the gene pool, or two firms. He can't compete with the French government and the European Union and the Japanese government and so forth. And because of those things, we've got to look beyond a traditional farm bill. And your earlier statistic, we're down to about 350,000 commercial farmers in this country. Uh, and they will do well if they have a competitive economy in the long run. But the economy is becoming more concentrated. Uh, the gene pool is extremely important because it's historically been in the public domain. And all the protectionism around the world. And those are real issues. If you were independent of the commission you're working on trying to write the next legislation, would you continue on the same track as Freedom to Farm has declined or attempted to decline the amount of government payments, continue the decoupling, and in the early part of the next century uh, completely disengage government payments from farming? 
Well, first of all, it is a popular myth that freedom to farm was going to end government payments. I never believed that, and the people that I worked with never believed that. Uh, and there's still $4 billion in the baseline when the law expires. What Freedom to Farm tried to do, this was the philosophy. we got to compete in the foreign markets uh, or either shut down half the wheat acreage and a third of the rice, soybean, and cotton acreage and a fifth of the feed grain acreage. We obviously aren't going to do that and talk about rural development in the same breath. So how do we compete overseas? And since our competitors protect their farmers, how do we protect ours? And so we come up with this idea of providing protection with the least market distortion possible. And that is a decoupled payment. Uh, that was the philosophy behind it, to make us com as competitive as possible but protect farmers. Now, if I could change it, um, I would be very glad to support a counter-cyclical income payment, rather than have a fixed schedule that actually declined from about 6.3 to 4 billion over the life of the bill before we came in with all this emergency aid, but come up with a counter-cyclical payment that's tied to gross revenue, for example. Now, not tied to price. That's the most market-distorting program you could come up with. Tied to income. And after all, income is what's important in the final analysis. Well, in a moment, we'd like to talk further with you and with callers. So if you'd like to talk with the chairman of the uh, Commission on 21st Century Production Agriculture, the commission that at the first day of 2001 will supposedly submit its recommendations and uh, be in effect the first draft of the next Farm Bill, our number is 888-247-4825. 888-AGRITALK. Call us right now. We're back after this. This is AgriTalk. I'm Ken Rue. Just sorting callers here. See who'll be the biggest train wreck. Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh is our guest this morning. If you'd like to call us, 888-247-4825. It's uh, only your economic future, your life, and your livelihood number of people coming down to addressing whether they're going to be the last generation to be on that farm. Uh, many people already taking second jobs off the farm. The transitions in agriculture are perhaps occurring faster than we're accepting them. But now we look at the next century and whether or not we're going to have a farm bill itself having any impact on changing trends or accelerating them. Your commission you've been on, I've, I've talked to several people on it and I at one time didn't think as you indicated to me it might be too successful, but in my Im impression, there are some pretty darn good people on the 21st Century Commission. It's an excellent group. It represents the entire political spectrum. Uh, it represents uh, production agriculture. This is a farmer-dominated commission, which it was designed to be. Uh, they work very well together. Uh, we're very much down the road getting the job done. Now, we haven't made any decisions yet, and that's going to be interesting because there's different philosophies, there's different backgrounds, uh, but every one of them has the same uh, goal, and that's to uh, 
protect the American farmer, uh, to uh, make him as competitive as possible in the global economy, provide a safety net. Uh, so uh, as commissions go, and you know the history of commissions, mm-hmm. uh, this one's got a chance at making a contribution. I have no doubt about that. Let's go to some callers here. 888-AGRITALK. Talk to Dr. Flinchbaugh. Give him your recommendations on what you want the farm legislation to be or your comments or criticisms of what is happening now. Leroy in Minnesota. Yes. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be able to talk to you. I think that the Freedom to Farm bill was essentially essentially a good bill, as uh, your guest had stated, you know, that we cannot distort the market. And the concern I have is... uh, this last uh, AMTA payment, that should have been approached a little differently, although I understand why they did it, because they had the format ready to quickly give assistance to the farm. And uh, as regards to loan deficiency payments, I was fortunate that I had a good crop. I got lighter soil. We just got one timely rain. I was the only one that had a half a crop, and it would not have distorted the market. But I do think that uh, in the future, if they've got to give assistance to farmers, they should subtract the loan deficiency payment from uh, the income that they had received for their crop and then give assistance to uh, your history of the crop commodities that you sold. I think then uh, it would be more fair. It would uh, not uh, support soybeans and corn production, but would uh, support production that fits the market. So basically you're saying you want it more focused in the uh, way that payments are, uh, are given out to well, AMTA, support people AMTA, who really need it. Yeah, well, the AMTA payment would be based upon uh, the total f- crop sales and not just strictly confined to uh, the commodities that are now supported. And oh. uh, like those that have feed their, have a lot of hay and so forth, and uh, they would feed it to cattle, they sell hay and so forth, that would be a way to uh, uh, give subsidy to agriculture. Dr. Flinchbaugh, I've got about a minute. You want to respond? Well, I basically agree. Uh, there's very little talk about the base that determines the AMTA payment. Uh, and those bases have not been updated since 1985, nor have the yields. It's clearly out of date. The question is, how do you get from there to here without penalizing those who participated in the program pre-1996 and set aside land and so forth? Uh, but I think the caller has a very good point. These payments are confined to the old program commodities, and uh, how do we expand it from there? We're going to take a look at that, and I don't have an easy answer to it, but uh, it's clearly a problem. Leroy, thank you for your phone call. We're going to come back in the second half hour. If you'd like to join in in this discussion of 21st century agriculture and the farm bill that will be a uh, marker along the way, give us a call at 888-247-4825, 888-AGRITALK. We're back after the half-hour break. Good morning. This is the Doan Market Update for this Tuesday on AgriTalk. I'm Mark Oppold. For complete analysis of today's crop and livestock markets and marketing advice, read the Doan Agricultural Report or visit the Doan website. Technical bounce, not a surprise at the open here this morning after corn and uh, wheat futures hit new contract lows again yesterday. Soybeans, a double-digit loss and uh, at four-and-a-half-month lows 
at the close yesterday. We do see that higher open, but difficult to hold it here already in the first uh, hour and a half of trade. We find the March corn up at only a half cent now, a dollar ninety six and a quarter near their lows of the session after highs a dollar ninety seven and three quarters. May corn up just a quarter of a cent now, two oh three and a quarter. Soybeans already to the minus side. January beans down two cents at four forty nine. March beans uh, down a penny and three quarters after a high at four fifty eight and three quarters. Currently. 455 and three quarters down a penny and three quarters looking at the wheat trade still higher the march uh, chicago up a penny and a quarter 239 may up a penny 249 and a quarter march kansas city up a penny 264 and a quarter and march minneapolis up a quarter of a cent 314 and a half over on the mercantile exchange the february cattle up 23 6860 April cattle up 15 at 7850 they're battling some high winds and uh, light snow but more more of the winds a factor at 50 60 mile an hour gusts in the western belt and plains the January feeder cattle down 12 points 8405 February hogs up 20 at 5520 that's your midday market update I'm Mark Oppold Now back to AgriTalk with your host, Ken Root. On Thursday, I want to point out we've talked the science of genetically enhanced uh, organisms. We will uh, talk with an entomologist from Iowa State University. So if you are still trying to sort out whether what we're now calling GMOs, and many people would like to, with a vested interest would like you to call something else, we'll talk about it from the scientific perspective, from agriculture's point of view, on Thursday. Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh is our guest today. We're pleased to have him on. Dr. Flinchbaugh is a professor and extension state leader in agricultural economics at Kansas State University. For our purposes, we have been aiming at him for quite some period of time because he uh, is chairing the commission that, in my estimation, you're going to write the first draft of the next farm bill. Dr. Flinchbaugh, is that accurate? Well, I wouldn't claim that, I don't think. Uh, but what we're going to do is make recommendations to the Congress and the president, we're certainly going to uh, uh, be quite definitive on the direction we think things should go. Uh, so we'll have uh, some influence on the new farm bill. How much uh, remains to be seen? That's a dynamic political process, and uh, we got an election coming up, and uh, uh, so uh, you never want to be real sure of yourself when you're dealing with Washington. Well, between now and 2002, we have a presidential election, uh, we have uh, congressional elections, uh, a third of the Senate will come up for vote, and it seems to me that what you're saying well could be true. Although, I want to quote another thing from Pat Roberts here. He says that, quote, little known but important reforms in the 1996 law disappeared with the $8.7 billion in emergency farm spending that the president uh, signed on October 22nd, end of quote. What does he mean by that? Well, frankly, I'm not so sure. He, um, uh, of course, is very upset that uh, the Roberts Carey bill went down, and we didn't get crop insurance reformed. Uh, the farm bill also promised regulatory relief, uh, tax relief, etc. And uh, there's been some tax relief, but the only regulatory relief is the farm bill itself. 
And, uh, you know, Pat believes strongly that we need to uh, put more of our eggs in the revenue insurance basket. He sees that as a distinct option for the next farm bill, and he couldn't get a bipartisan bill through the Congress. So he wasn't a very happy camper when that was going on. Uh, but I reminded him the other day that the emergency legislation did not change any of the principal principles behind the farm bill. We are still decoupled. Uh, we are still uh, operating a program that gives the farmer the flexibility to plant what he wants to plant and to manage his own risk. So the basic concept is still intact. What we simply did was change the schedule of payments and increase uh, the payments that went to the farmer. Now, there are all, all kinds of little bells and whistles on that thing to pass uh, muster with the right senator or the right congressman to get the vote. So, yes, there are small items, but we're talking millions, not billions. Uh, but I would argue that the basic tenet behind uh, the 96 Farm Bill remains intact. Let's take some phone calls here. If you'd like to talk to Dr. Flinchball, 888-AGRA-TALK. <laughs> Robert in North Dakota. Hello, Robert. Yeah. I think one of the problems that we've had with these farm bills is we've become an unreliable supplier because we've been slapped with too many sanctions and embargoes, and they should open up trade, uh, freedom of trade on uh, agricultural products medicine like some congressmen wanted to do, especially at Oregon and North Dakota there, and uh, outlaw these embargoes, because every time it gets going good, why somebody slaps an embargo or something on us, and, uh, and bingo no, the No, we on down. they. We yeah. on they. Uh, at least a sanction on them, yeah. which comes from Congress, in my estimation. Yeah. Um, does that, has that been an external factor, another external factor, Dr. Flinchball, that has made it to where that what was set up in 96 doesn't work in 99 as well as we hoped? Absolutely. Uh, we're sanctioned crazy. Uh, that's the new word for the old embargo. Mm -hmm. And the thing that always amazes me about embargoes and sanctions, we always put them on because we're trying to control the behavior of another country. And it never works. Oh, somebody takes our customers. Yes. It never changes the behavior of that other country. The first major embargo we put on was in 1959 against Fidel Castro. And General Eisenhower, who was president at the time, said, we'll cut off trade, we'll isolate him, and we'll be rid of him in two years. Well, the great general's back in Abilene, and look where Fidel is. Uh, they don't work. Now, we have an overinflated idea of how much damage that does. It clearly does damage. Uh, but just not having sanctions and embargoes won't solve the problem alone. But it is certainly one of the factors. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, well, I got another comment. There's another thing. Uh, we, uh, we're we uh, at a high balance of trade now, and when the value of our dollar starts going down against uh, foreign currencies, maybe the price of the commodities will come up a little. Yeah, I think you're correct. Uh, okay. Let's go over to a uh, caller on a mobile phone, Alan in Iowa. Hello, Alan. Uh, good morning, Ken. Um, hey, I just wanted a little clarification on the statement that the good doctor made a little earlier. He said he wanted to tie the countercyclical payments to income, and I was just wondering what the mechanics of such a program were and how you do that without penalizing the efficient farmer and rewarding inefficient farmers. 
Well, you posed the question. The mechanics remain to be worked out. Now, Charlie Stenholm has a bill. Uh, he's the uh, ranking congressman on the House Ag Committee from Texas. He has a bill in that ties it to gross revenue. And they're simply, simply countercyclical. Uh, gross revenue goes up, payment goes down, and vice versa. Uh, that's about as far as we've gotten yet. We're, we, we're studying this thing, and we're talking about it. Uh, it won't be simple. But if you base it on income uh, in total, and you wouldn't necessarily do the individual farmer's income, but a aggregate income for the region or something like that, you could uh, design it to uh, basically neutralize this efficient versus inefficient, although that's a been a difficult problem with us that's been with us for a long time how do you reward the efficient and uh, not the inefficient and, and there's a body of voters in the political arena that want to reward the inefficient how about the uh, doubling of the payment cap uh, was that good or bad in your estimation or just necessary well it was necessary it was necessary or the government's going to end up with a lot of this grain in storage under the old traditional non-recourse loan program because that would have been the only option left if once you hit the 75,000. And one of, the, one of the real positive things for farmers that came out of that debate, uh, a lot of us who uh, think we know what's going on were very skeptical of that in the beginning, that, that we'd never get that through Congress. And it went through Congress pretty simple, pretty easy. So uh, it's understood finally that $150,000 payment from the government to an efficient commercial farmer uh, is not uh, outlandish. I mean, that, we're talking about the good commercial farmers of this country. We're not talking about corporate farms. And 75 is entirely too low if you're going to support that good, efficient commercial family farmer that's out there. Alan, thank you very much. All right, well, thank you, sir. Um, speaking of who counts and the doubling of that payment, is the everybody thinks that every piece of legislation is looking out for them, but would you segment out what group of farmers that the current and, in your estimation, future farm bills will really look out for? <coughs> well, we'll target to what I just talked about, uh, our, our goal at least. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to target the payment. But the target goal is that commercial family farmer out there that, uh, on the average, uh, given the price swings and so income swing and so forth, uh, has got a crack at making it. Um, we may have a, a chapter in the report on the real small farmer, uh, especially the the black farmer in the south where there's tons of problems. We were, the commission was just down there. But other than that, we will, t um, our goal is to come up with a, a program that will work for that typical commercial family farm out there. If you're on the line, stay there. We're going to come back after this commercial break. Talk to Dr. Barry Flinchball last time around. If you'd like to call in, we have a slot open. If you'll call right now, 888-AGRITALK. Information you want and the voice you need.
Well, let's get a little class warfare going here, Dr. Flinchball. Let's go to Pete in South Dakota. Hey, Pete, good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you, Ken. Happy holidays. Uh, I, I was just listening here. You know, and a lot of that guaranteed income, it bothers me that it, it's going to become a corporate and off-the-farm welfare system, just, you know, for the, you know, driving the land prices up for the farmer and everything else. I just don't think that people that aren't actively engaging in farming themselves should be entitled to any of these programs. Now, are you referring to those people who own the land and get a part of the payment uh, for right, that purpose? Right, that right, right. And the corp big corporations and so forth, I, you know, it's corporate welfare. I know a well, lot now, of that goes on. But who, who owns the farmland, though, Pete? What? Who owns the farmland in this country? Who well, owns thousands the Thousands and thousands of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But I just, it's just that uh, when we have these farm programs, I think that they were really intended for the, you know, keeping the, the smaller farmers and the farmers going, you know. Well, let's see if what Dr. Flinchball says. Well, yes, that was the intention. Now, I would say probably medium size instead of small. Yeah, medium, I agree. Uh, but the problem is, how do you do that? Uh, you target these payments to the medium-sized farms, and, and uh, overnight on paper, you're going to have more medium-sized farms. Uh, we've had a terrible time trying to get that defined. We had that problem with payment limitations. Uh, there's the old Mississippi Christmas tree uh, argument. Uh, here's a case where it's very difficult to disagree with the motive. The problem is make it work. It's, it's kind of like how you determine the federal income tax base. Uh, so I don't disagree with the philosophy. I've just never been able to figure out how to get them, uh, get them targeted. Now, we could uh, design a program that uh, gave more to the tenant than the landlord, for example, and that's something we'll certainly take a look at. Uh, but it is very difficult to get these payments targeted to the the group that you want to target, because there's all kinds of ways to split up farm, organ, uh, farm operations. And the people who are bidding up the prices of that rent, Pete, are the people who are farming the land. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. But the initial, the base price where it starts, a lot of times is driven up from outside investors. In a lot of cases, they farm the government program, and the government buys the land for them. Well, it's a free country. They're free to do that. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, it doesn't matter what program. That's all I had, Kim. Thank you, it doesn't matter what program we come up with. The results are going to get capitalized into land values. Doreen in Illinois. Doreen, good morning. Hi. You know, uh, I'm new to this farm uh, community, the, the whole area is in farming, and I'm wondering, are there too many farmers in the United States? Is too much food or whatever produced to feed all the people of this country? Are there too many? Yeah, I mean, are is... Do we have a surplus of food if we do not import from other countries? What I'm trying to figure out, could, this, could our farmers survive if they didn't have to compete with foreign countries? Well, okay, let's not import, but at the same time, then, uh, what do we do with the one-third? How much is it, Dr. Flinchball? What percent of our it's production goes a, out? It's roughly a third. So one-third of our production that is exported, if we stopped imports and we stopped exports, then we could have a whole different system, but would that be what we really want, Doreen? I don't know. I, I'm new to this, and I'm curious about... I, I can't see why our farmers should have to compete with farmers who are subsidized by their government. I don't know why that should have to happen, but if, if we're going to subsidize our farmers to, to
to feed other people, and we're subsidizing them to feed other people, I don't understand why we're doing it. It's just beyond me why we're going through well, all now, these contortions. Our, yeah, I think the question here is, and I appreciate you being inquisitive about this as a person outside farming rather than just being uh, oblivious to it. The, the question to me I'd like to get to Dr. Flinchbaugh is, in this country, the farm legislation we have, is it designed so that we can feed other people in the world? Is it designed so that we can cheaply and economically, or cheaply and safely feed the people in this country at a low price? Or is it designed to keep farmers on the land? Well, it's designed to be competitive in the global economy, which will keep farmers on the land, which will feed other people around the world. And as long as the European Union uh, and other competitors protect their farmers, we don't have any choice but to protect ours because uh, that farmer there in Minnesota can't compete with the French government, but he can compete with the French farmer. Uh, we would all be better off if we would sit down at the WTO, come to our senses, and agree to let the market operate. Uh, but the European Union is not going to do that. Uh, we couldn't get any agreement in Seattle. But, but sir, sir. Yeah, Doreen, go ahead. I'm listening. Uh, we all know that France is a communist government. France? Yes. Aren't, isn't their president, president a communist? Socialist. Well. Well, now, there's a whole lot of difference in French uh, communism or socialism than there is in uh, Eastern European or Russian such as that. Uh, it's been pointed out by one of the members of... Uh, uh, the committee on 21st century agriculture that the French are just better at protesting than the rest of us are. <laughs> they're sure well, they're bad. Yeah, right. They're getting their way, and that's bad. <laughs> Doreen, thank you very thank much. You. Let's bounce to one more here. Barry, were you going to say something? No. Let's go to Mike in Iowa. Mike, hello. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Well, I don't like to be repeating what someone else said, but up in Minnesota, the gentleman about the trade, I just feel our image uh, again. It's the same song uh, of being a, a compatible trader. Uh, we'll never take politics out of our farm <coughs> program, but it just seems to me that we, we do a lot of talking, but I, I don't, in my opinion, don't really feel we're bona fide uh, people on when it comes to honoring our trade commitments. And I mean, I don't want to throw politics uh, per se as one party versus the other. It just has been going on and on, and whether it's Cuba, China, Whatever. I mean, as a farmer all my life, I just feel we just want to have a market, and, a, and as you've been saying, a fair market. And, and I would like to move on real quickly. Uh, one other thing, if I may, or actually two, if I can get to it. But one. the GMO, I feel the GMO was, uh, I'm not against progress, but I, I feel that was one of the debacles of, of farming uh, uh, image again. Uh, In what way, the GMO? Well, the, the GMO was, was brought on by, again, by, uh, by uh, uh, progress per se, but yet it wasn't accepted in the European market. And, and to me, uh, they've used that, uh, that, that. To me, that was ridiculous to, to uh, if it's proven safe, fine, but yet sell that to our, to our uh, people over in Europe. Well, to, to touch on GMO, is uh, I'd like to finish up with that, is that it seemed to me, Dr. Flinchball, that the companies got caught up in their success of selling it to the farmer and the incredible adoption rate to the point that 
they clearly overlooked what the consumer might react to on uh, genetically modified organisms. Well, they clearly overlooked the European consumer, and they almost overlooked the American consumer, but uh, uh, within the last several months, uh, uh, the situation has changed some, at least. They're now doing some PR work and so forth. But the, the situation in Europe is uh, totally misrepresented. It, it's a protectionist policy of the European Union, just like the beef hormone issue. And, for example, soybean uh, sales to Europe uh, are progressing about normal, mm -hmm. and they're buying GMO soybeans. At the same time, they're putting out press releases saying they're not going to buy them. Well, that whole issue is one we could debate for the entirety of the hour. I do appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down with us and talk about the work of your commission and your observations on the Farm Bill. And, uh, Dr. Flinchball, happy holidays to you. Same to you, and anytime, just call me. All right, thank you very much. Tomorrow, we're going to talk to Noreen Thomas, see if we can do something for Christmas. So join us right here for AgriTalk. This program was pulled from our archives. It was a December 1999 program, as you could tell by the Christmas wishes that were being given back and forth by myself and others. If you like this show or didn't and would like to make a comment, my email in the current time is kenroot at gmail.com. You can also like this program and subscribe to this program on your local podcast and you'll be notified when we bring forth some from the same era. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.